You're listening to the Healthcare Goes Digital podcast. Get ready to be inspired as we explore provocative topics surrounding innovative technologies and ideas with top industry professionals, digital entrepreneurs, and provocateurs. At Impetus Digital, we believe that everything starts with a conversation. We aspire to act as the bridge to not only ignite these courageous conversations, but to also sustain them over time. We do this through our Insight platform, which features our award-winning Insight events and Insight Touchpoint solutions, and through these fireside chats. In the end, our hope is to collectively and positively disrupt healthcare. Let's get started with your host, Natalie Eden. CEO and co-founder of Impetus Digital, an all-in-one, fully-serviced virtual collaboration and communication solution for online meetings, events, conferences, and advisory boards for life science companies. Hello, everybody. My name is Natalie Yeadon. I'm the co-founder and CEO with Impetus Digital. At Impetus Digital, we have built some of the best-in-class asynchronous and synchronous virtual collaboration and communication tools. We have helped pharmaceutical companies from across the globe over the past 14 years to help them with virtualizing almost everything, from their advisory and consultancy meetings, medical education, peer influence programs. So we take a series of touch points with their payers, physicians, allied healthcare providers, patients and payers, Um, And we actually work together in a series of touch points to help figure out strategies, ideas, tactics, new programs, clinical trials, and dispersing medical information. But more importantly at Impetus, we really believe that everything starts with a conversation. And uh, from some of these really big, hairy, audacious conversations with some of the leading edge thinkers, the digital provocateurs, and the healthcare thought leaders, we can all work together to collectively and positively disrupt healthcare. So I'm very excited to having one of these healthcare thought leaders at the table with me today. This is actually Larry Bressler. He is the head of value and market access, global rare diseases at KC Group, where he addresses the commercial and market access needs of marketed as well as candidate treatments um, for things like rare and ultra rare diseases. So he has over 20 years of pharmaceutical industry experience. He brings a range of proficiency across rare diseases, as well as primary care, pharmaceutical, as well as vaccine sales and marketing. So prior to joining KC uh, Rare Diseases, Larry has served as the VP for global launch lead for a company called Rhythm Pharmaceuticals. um, At that company, he was responsible for leading launch strategy, as well as developing solutions for physicians, including the creation of a global genetic testing program. So Larry also held held various leadership roles at Shire, um, where he led pre-launch global commercial planning into the disease areas of eosinophilic esophagitis, that's a mouthful, um, and hereditary angioedema. So before moving into the rare disease space, which we're gonna get into some discussions today, because this is an area that a lot of pharmaceutical companies are getting into, Lawrence has held a series of roles of increasing responsibility at GlaxoSmithKline as well as at Merck. Welcome, Larry. So happy to have you on the show today. <laughs> Thanks, Natalie. Really happy to be here. <laughs> so quite an ex- um, a career, lots of exciting things. You've worked in a myriad of global Fortune 500 pharmaceutical companies. So an extensive background. Maybe we can just kind of get started with how you actually ever got into the place you're working in now and specifically your interest in rare disorders. 
Yeah, you know, so I was I was at Rhythm for a, a number of years, and you know, Casey approached me um, probably about three three years ago, and you know, they they really had a really I thought it was a very interesting opportunity because we'll get into this I think a little bit later, but you know, the nature of Casey being a family corporation, being a uh, certified B um, corporation, you know, was was really kind of unique. I'd spent a lot of time in uh, public companies. And there was a, a just kind of a different, a different vibe associated with Casey that was drawing me to the, the the company as well as the opportunity to build out a, a rare disease um, team. So I mean, I started in 2020, probably not the greatest timing to uh, to build a team, but the attraction, you know, was to build a team both on in market access uh, on the global side in the U.S. as well as on the regional side. Um, in our in uh, Parma, Italy, where the company is is headquartered, uh, and also to to add to my um, experience around uh, marketing, to add market access into my basket. Up until Kiesi had primarily been in marketing and uh, some sales roles, but really marketing, you know, heavy duty for about twenty years. So it was really the opportunity to come to uh, a, a kind of unique place to build and uh, to add to my my toolbox with uh, market access experience. Um, I, I think you asked me also about like rare disease because what, what brought me there because as, as mentioned earlier, I think when you went through my profile, I, I'd spent a long time in, in some bigger pharmaceutical companies, more in the primary care space, vaccines and, uh, and also in the statin market. And what, what really brought me over to rare disease was it was that nexus of, with the patient. It was the opportunity to really impact patients one patient at a time. Yet you don't really have that close proximity to patients when you're in um, a larger market with millions of patients. I mean, um, it, you know, some of the products we're working on at, at Kiesi, we might have, you know, 100 patients in the country who have a condition. Um, so, you know, you really get to meet and interact with the patients really closely and, and really understand, you know, what they're experiencing. You know, we, we do that in primary care markets, but in, in rare disease, you, you really, really need to understand that patient journey, the, uh, the, the language they use, and you really get to, you really get to almost walk in their shoes. And that's, I mean, that's probably not fair to say because, you know, if you don't have the condition, one of these conditions, it's really hard to fully understand it, but we really try hard to get very close and to have that, that I've used the word nexus, but that's really what we try to do here. Very exciting. And, you know, I mean, it really has to be said. I mean, we use the word customer centricity a lot in pharma. Some people, it's more of a cliche. Other people really believe in it. But I think really in the in the case of Kiesi, that it's it is fundamentally part of your business plan. So let's actually just start there a little bit is you have worked for large pharmaceutical companies, GSK, Merck and others. And so we're used to the phenomena of the blockbuster going over the big, large therapeutic areas where basically the drug sells itself. Now we're actually in a, in a very different world. The pharmaceutical companies, there's patent cliffs, there's no longer these big blockbusters, there's lots of challenges with legacy reimbursement models. Tell us a little bit about what you believe has been the transition of pharmaceutical companies building their businesses on these large therapeutic spaces, cardiovascular diabetes, and pivoting, if you will, into these much more niche marketplaces. Why, why has that happened? 
and what has been your experience of, of the new change in the pharmaceutical business model? Yeah, well, you know, I, th I think that the, what I, I've noticed is, you know, as you mentioned, with a lot of the large pharmaceutical companies, I mean, like, you know, I was at Merck, you know, Merck was, uh, for years, was a cardiovascular uh, juggernaut, you know, just new innovative therapies, one after the other. And, you know, over time, I think a lot of the, let's say the low hanging fruit from cardiovascular, even respiratory, you know, a lot of that's already been discovered. So it makes it harder and harder to come up with a a solution that's so much better than what's already generic. So I think the companies have smartly realized that, you know, in order to survive and thrive, you really need to move into more specialty markets. You know, you might not have uh, the same number of patients that you do in a, in a larger primary care space, but you have the opportunity to treat some that are people that have truly unmet needs, you know, whether it's in respiratory with, with someone who has a very acute and severe case of asthma, treating them with some new, some of the new modalities that are out there, you know, pivoting to look at, to look in that direction, I think is smart because, because really at the end of the day, what, what the drug industry really is focused it focused on is unmet needs, meeting those needs. And I think also a lot of the pharmaceutical industry realized, you know, rare disease, you know, there was the Waxman Hatchat years ago and, you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, legislation around, um, jumpstarting rare disease uh, as a viable market, frankly. And I think a lot of the pharma companies now realize that you know, this is an area of tremendous unmet need. I think I've seen between seven and 10,000 diseases. You know, there, there's some that are probably more akin now to a uh, primary care space and that there's a lot of competition, but there are thousands of diseases with, you know, probably tens of thousands, if not millions of people who are still you know, searching for answers. And I think pharma can provide that, that solution. So it's, it's exciting to be in this. I mean, you know, I, we, in, in, in the company I'm in right now, you know, we come across so many different conditions and so many different, you know, people on a daily basis. I mean, you just don't, you know, it's, it's not like uh, you, you, you know, everything about rare diseases. There's, there's so many of them. It's, and it's exciting and intriguing to see what solutions we can bring. So it's a really interesting question. So pharma has now pivoted into an area that, you know, where there's a lot of potential research, there's a, a very finite number of people across the globe that has particular disorders. How do pharmaceutical companies determine which of these myriad of, of rare situations, conditions, disorders that they're gonna select and start working and researching on? How does that actually even start? You know, it's a good question. I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure like the initial jump in is necessarily that choice, but it might, you know, it might be just something that you have and, you know, in your, in the clinic that, that, that you find that treats a rare disease. And, you know, for when I was at Rhythm, we were working on a, an obesity product and which has since been approved for some uh, rare conditions of obesity, but initially it wasn't necessarily going to be used for, you know, rare, rare disease. So I think sometimes you, you might find that, you have something that fits with a rare disease and other times it might be more choiceful. But I think what, what once you kind of establish a beachhead in, in rare, you're looking for things that are probably more, um, you know, tangential or closely, closely aligned with what you're in. So for example, you know, at, at Kiesi, we have a, a number of products for lysosomal storage disorders. So, you know, looking for the synergies of, you know, who's treating those diseases and bringing multiple solutions in that category 
to the physician. So, you know, physicians get to know you, the community gets to know you and you, you build on those relationships. You know, I think it's a lot harder, you know, for some, for a company to be focusing on one space and to go in something completely different. It's, it's not that that will never happen. I, and I can't say it won't ever happen at Kiesi, but it makes it easier if you can kind of focus on an area, build the expertise and then kind of expand outward from there. So you did mention that um, Kiesi's headquarters is in Italy and you were asked basically to kind of come in and I guess start up the, the US um, local operating company, is that correct? Not necessarily. So I, I, was, I was brought in to start up the marketing and market access function. So the way we're organized, the the uh, global headquarters for KAC rare disease is actually in Boston, okay. which is much different than the rest of the company. And then, you know, in Boston, we have uh, somebody who is the U.S. lead. So really kind of running the U.S. sales team and operations. You have me who's really running the marketing and, and market access. And then we have some folks um, in Italy who are uh, who are running the European and emerging markets part of the business. My, my role is kind of across both the U.S. and the and the global side. So it's I get to see what's happening on both sides of the pond and do a lot of traveling these days too. Absolutely. So the market access is probably an incredibly, like you said, it's a new and but an incredibly challenging and interesting area. So I think one of the challenges for pharmaceutical companies across the world, especially now that people are intently looking at global access and global effective global launches, um, is the whole legacy market access reimbursement structures and frameworks. Now, I guess rare disorders are orchestrated or developed um, and they're very expensive to develop. Maybe you can we can kind of start from there about why rare disorder uh, clinical trials and why they are, uh, are are so difficult and why these products are so expensive. Yeah, there's, there's, well, first of all, in the clinical trials, I think, first of all, you know, think about in many cases, you're working in a, a disease that the regulatory bodies don't know anything about. So even just figuring out what the endpoints need to be, like, how do you actually prove that you are improving someone's life? It's, it's not, you know, I, I, I hearken back to my days on the statin market where, you know, when you're lowering LDL cholesterol, that is an accepted, you know, way of, of, of showing that you're improving you know, the cardiovascular long-term outcomes. And there, then there were outcome studies on top of that. Here, you know, we don't necessarily always know what good looks like. So, it, you know, there's a lot of back and forth with the agency to even set up the trial. And, and then, you know, think about a condition that might have, you know, 200 people in, in, in the country or, you know, 200 people in Europe. Trying to find them is very difficult. So the, just the, the trial, setting them up, are, are very, very expensive. And, you know, and, and that, you know, in order to, again, to fund the R&D, you know, the prices need to, need to be there too, because otherwise no one would be able to go into this space if you couldn't actually make a return on it. Um, I think what, one thing that's really unique about our company being a family business, you know, we, we take a much more long-term view. We don't, our shareholders are, uh, is the family, you know, there's, so, and, and, you know, we interact with them and, you know, but, my, my actual manager is uh, Giacomo Chiesi. He's the grandson of the founder of the company. So, I mean, he's, and he's one of the board members. So, you know, he, he's influencing how we're looking at things and taking that long-term view. But again, you know, it, profitability is important, you know, to, to sustain the business. We need to find conditions that, you know, we think we can make a return, but 
again, the trials are very expensive and they're, you know, it starts with regulatory, it goes through, you know, actually finding people to be in the studies, um, you know, and it, and it can take a, a, quite a long time to actually get a therapy approved. But, you know, again, it's really rewarding too at the, at the same rate. I mean, you're bringing a solution to people who in many cases have no, nothing on the market and no other options. And, it, it, you know, you can change someone's, you know, life expectancy, you know, pretty substantially if you can get a drug on the market, you know, in, in time for them to truly benefit from the therapy. So, you know, that, that's what I think keeps us going, you know, at KAC and I'm sure my, my counterparts at other uh, rare disease companies. So how involved, as we were talking earlier about patient centricity and, um, and some companies that their entire business model is, is built on that, how involved are the actual patients and their caregivers in, for example, the development of a clinical trial in terms of the protocol development, even in terms of the endpoints that are selected? And how are they involved potentially with the regulatory bodies? Yeah, that's a really great question. So um, you know, at, at Casey and other companies, we, we try to bring in the voice of the patient very early on. So whether we're designing a phase two or a phase three study that the, the essence of truly building a study that's going to be meaningful for the community means getting their feedback. So we, we you know, we are, uh, I mean, really, again, patients at the center of everything we do. We work really closely through our advocacy team to bring in that, that voice of the patient into the development, um, and and also on the reg on the regulatory side, and we haven't, you know, some companies, you know, have had to have used, um, you know, patients to actually bring that voice into um, the FDA, and the FDA now has a um, a mechanism to bring that patient voice in. So, you know, we work really closely with the agency to to help facilitate bringing the voice of the patients in, regardless of whether you know it's a disease that we have a direct impact on or not. I think. What's important is giving the patients an opportunity to have their say. And, you know, if you don't, you really missed an opportunity to do the right thing. I mean, it, I, I will say again, at our company, it's not lip service that, you know, we, we really strive to be patient centric and have the patients at the center. It is everything we do. And, you know, we, we, we even start our meetings off, some of our larger meetings off with a patient story. I mean, it, it is so heavily embedded that if we didn't include the patient voice in regulatory or, or uh, in the clinical side, I think it would be, it would almost be strange for us because it's such, it's become such a part of our DNA. So for rare disorder specialty companies like uh, yourselves is finding these patients, it's, it's sort of like looking for a needle in a haystack. Yeah. Advocacy groups are obviously a beautiful thing to have because they're probably assisting, you know, especially around clinical trial recruitment, and other sorts of uh, other sorts of initiatives. Outside of that, how do you find these patients? And the reason I'm, I'm asking that question with an emphasis is that primary care physicians are inundated with information. And now with the roar around rare disorders, they're even on overwhelm of trying to identify all of these very generalist symptoms and trying to bring people in. How do you even go about doing that early diagnosis? Yeah, it's, it's another great question. I mean, it's I, I can't imagine being a primary care physician and, and trying to identify a multitude of these conditions. Because I mean, I, I don't think you you can really be expected to know everything about everything. I mean, some of these some of these diseases are certainly very unique, and you would never recognize them unless you were looking for it. 
So, I mean, you know, what, what we do, um, I think you made a good point about the advocacy groups, but in some cases there is really no advocacy group present. So, you know, you're really trying to figure out, um, you know, the, the patient journey and, and how, a, how a patient kind of walks through the system, which could be seven to 10 years before they get diagnosed, you know, but again, in a rare disease case, even that seven to 10 years, if it's a disease with no advocacy group and, and symptoms that are not very unique, you know, they may never get, you know, um, identified. So, you know, what, a couple things, you know, we do, I mean, beyond the traditional, you know, uh, Facebook presence and websites and, and, uh, and, and symposia around the condition, you know, we, a couple things that, that pharmaceutical companies will do. One is um, gene offering genetic testing. Um, there's a number of programs that, that the pharmaceutical companies have offered, which are, they're free to the provider. Um, it, you know, as long as someone has a, um, is suspected of having a condition that, you know, based on some clinical presentation, um, they, they can get genetically tested and, that, and that's come down in price. You know, it used to be, you know, thousands of dollars to get a genetic test. Now it's, it's a couple hundred depending on where you go. So that, that's one way of doing it. But I, I'd say the, the other way that's really started to advance is um, the use of, um, you know, intelligence, you know, big data sets, you know, going through claims data and looking at symptoms for your condition that match up to people who have, you know, claims in, in the uh, data set. Excuse me. So we'll, we'll come through the uh, claims data to find basically patients that look like patients that might have the condition. And, um, you know, through that, we'll have, a, we'll, we would know, you know, hey, Dr. So-and-so has a, a number of patients in their practice. And, you know, we at least can identify where some of the patients are and, you know, you know, tailor our marketing to those, those, those physicians and, and so on and so forth. But again, that, that, that is very difficult. I mean, you get a lot of false positives, you know, but, you know, the, through a combination of, you know, um, AI and, and through genetic testing and, you know, marketing and, you know, getting involved, you know, trying to put yourself out with the, to the community, find, trying to find people through market research, you ultimately can find people, but it's, it's challenging. We, we have a condition right now that we're, we're, we're uh, bringing to market where, you know, patient finding is, is, is challenging because it's just not diagnosed in the U.S. and there's no, there's no uh, procedural code that says, you know, so-and-so has this disease. So, you know, we, we do our best, but that, that is, I'd say, you know, a lot of what we do in the industry is around shortening that journey, finding, finding and educating uh, patients and their caregivers, and then trying to connect them to a therapy, but it's, there's no magic bullet, but it's, it's, you know, again, it's the same thing as I said earlier, when you do find somebody who didn't realize they had a condition and, you know, fingers crossed that the, the therapy works for them, it's magic. I mean, it can really change lives. Yeah, really brilliant. That's uh, an amazing, when you hear the trajectory of that, that is certainly a challenge for not only the pharmaceutical company, but certainly for the patients as well. So I was also just curious as we sort of think about um, the way we're locating and finding patients is, you know, what the, the, the access 
part of it. So even if they do find the drug and they do see that there's something could work and they, you know, they've been diagnosed appropriately is these products are very expensive. Now, mm -hmm. the corollary to this as well, too, is it's not only just because of the work that's required in these very difficult clinical trials, but oftentimes these medications are developed with really highly technical tools, things like CRISPR, and there's, you know, and again, even in oncology, you know, there's oncotherapeutics and small molecules and, and you know, all sorts of things that are very difficult to create. So the technologies are really advanced. And we're facing at the same time legacy regulatory and reimbursement models that are not willing, if you will, to accept the price tags associated with these, you know, very advanced technologies. Mm -hmm. So what do we do in this situation? What are some of the things that the pharmaceutical companies are doing to start to change the ecosystem and get people to start understanding why these price tags are warranted? and why the rare disorder space or precision medicine, if you will, be able to precisely find these people and get them the right medications. How do we start changing that dialogue? You know, a, a lot of it, I think, in my experience has been around, you know, education with, with the payers, starting, starting from there, you know, um, meeting with them, informing them, educating, um, so that they're, you know, first of all, they're not surprised by what's coming, and then you get and getting their feedback and incorporating it into your, your go-to-market strategy. One thing that most companies do before something comes to market is they, there's these pre-approval um, education meetings that you're allowed to have with the payers within about a six-month period of an approval. So, you know, through that, there's, you know, there's education about the condition and, you know, potentially the modality of the, you obviously can't get into the, the product itself. So there's a lot of education that we can do. The other thing is, you know, exploring new um, new reimbursement models. We've seen in many cases there's, um, you know, there's kind of an annuity because we understand that, you know, a gene therapy is expensive and, you know, something that might have a $2 million price tag is a lot for a, a, an insurance company to swallow at one time, even if they only have 10 or 15 patients on, you know, who, who are eligible, it's still, you know, $20, $30 million. So, you know, we've seen a lot of companies try to break up the cost of that through an annuity, you know, whether it's a 10 year, five year, what have you. So that, that seems to be, you know, helping with the um, uptake and acceptance of some of the more expensive therapies like the gene therapies. There's also, and I, I don't know if this necessarily solves the, um, the cost issue per se, but the, there's like, um, there's now contracts that we have with um, different uh, payers around uh, metrics. So, you know, did the therapy actually behave, you know, as, as expected? So, you know, if it does, you know, you pay the full amount, if it doesn't, there's some discount. So there's, you know, there's different modalities, you know, that can, you know, sp spread the risk, spread the cost out. I still think that there's probably more that will be, um, we'll see in the future. There's probably things that I am not aware of that we could do one day to, you know, to really make this a partnership. You know, in, in the U.S., we I think, again, we've had fairly good success with uptake in these newer contracts. Europe's still very hard. I mean, Europe is, you know, a central payer in each country. And, you know, you really have to prove that that therapy is, is necessary and better than something else on the market. And we've seen a number of, you know, thera uh, gene therapies not do so well and, you know, basically exit Europe. So there's still 
more I think we need to do in Europe to make the gene therapy successful. But we're going to keep trying because I, you know, I think at the end of the day, you know, that that's where the, the industry is going. And, you know, if you can really, you know, fix the problem by through, through, through a administration of a gene therapy, I, I think it's ob we're obligated to find a way to, you know, work with the health authorities to get them to pay for it. But it's still a work in progress, especially in Europe. 100%. Gene therapies are such an exciting new technology and science. Um, I know that uh, Chiesi has lots of different partnerships with different companies, but one that kind of comes to my mind theoretically in the future, as we consider precision medicine and being able to appropriately diagnose genetic disorders, is I'm thinking about companies like the 23andMe's, et cetera, where it makes genetic testing accessible to the entire population across the globe. Is there potential opportunities for partnerships at that level? And the second part to that question is, does, do you and your company believe that genetic testing is the way of the future as we think about data lakes and data oceans and thinking about really doing forensic uh, you know, optimization of that data to determine population dynamics and seeing if certain you know, uh, environmental factors are creating these genetic situations in mm -hmm. certain parts of the world? Um, what do you say about those potential partnerships and the future of genetic testing? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I definitely think it's it's the future, and I wouldn't say it's too far off from the future. It's probably almost here. So yeah, I think there's opportunities for partnerships with 23andMe, Ancestry, those types of companies. I, I, I know in my past, we've explored some of those. And yeah, the challenge is around rare disease and have it, you know, whether the companies gather the information on just certain genes or do they get a, a, do they actually do a full genome sequencing and have all the data on all the genes but, but there's definitely an opportunity there with that I, I really think the wave of the future though is is newborn screening so you know there's a there's a panel right now where where, where kids get um, tested for certain genetic disorders upon birth but it's not like, it, it's not a, a true genetic panel. And with the prices coming down so much for genetic testing, um, in some cases, again, you know, under 300 or maybe even less than that, there's an opportunity, I think, in the not too distant future to get everybody, every newborn's genetic sequence. So you, I mean, a lot of these diseases are, you know, impacting, you know, children right away from birth. And if we can diagnose virtually everybody upon birth, I mean, you could really interrupt the, you know, the, uh, the patient journey. I mean, it would be amazing to, to have, you know, we have roughly 4 million births a year. And if, you know, if we can really get the critical mass up and, 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 and run testing on all those babies and, and, and stop these diseases really before they start, I mean, that would be amazing. I mean, I think that's really where we're going. And, you know, I think what, you know, that would, almost obviate the need for like a 23andMe and, and Ancestry because as you test each generation or each, you know, cohort of, of, of newborns, you know, that, then everybody's going to have their genetic sequence. So I think it's an exciting time. I mean, there's a lot of work um, going on in, 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 the, uh, in the testing space for newborns. And I would not be surprised within the next, you know, five, 10 years if it becomes reality. Yeah. So I think it's some great conversation. Certainly, you know, some ethical things I think that have to be worked sure. out. I'm sure that those conversations are happening. But again, 
um, overlapping that with artificial intelligence, smart algorithms, et cetera, population health management is probably going to be, like you said, a really exciting space. So I do have a, also a question. You said that you built, in some ways, your team during COVID. Uh, there's been a, obviously, that has accelerated and decelerated many different things in, in the world. And so I was just kind of curious about your thoughts on building teams, the idea of building culture, and more importantly, engagement of physicians um, and other key healthcare stakeholders in a virtual space. How were you doing this and 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 what kinds of recommendations or suggestions would you have for somebody who might have to do something like that in the future? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, building the team, you know, and, and building the culture. I think, you know, first of all, our, our company, um, as I mentioned, Giacomo, who's the head of our business, it kind of sets its own for, you know, collaboration, you know, collaboration and patient centricity. So, you know, when building the team, even though it was virtual, you know, I was looking for people who I felt were collaborative, but also had, you know, much different skills than I do. I mean, I, I, you know, I'll be the first to admit, you know, I'm not the market access expert. I haven't been doing that for 20 years. You know, I have, I obviously have knowledge in the space, but you know, I really looked for complementary people who had skills that, you know, would mesh, you know, would, would actually cover up for things maybe I don't know about. Because um, I, th I think that's, you know, as a leader, you, you really need to look at what, what, what you know, what your deficits are and try to bring people in who can, Complement your complement your deficits. I, I think in this uh, in this world, especially you know, as you move up the um, leadership in companies, you also lose a little bit of touch with some of the things around the digital space. I I, I really wanted to bring in people who uh, knew about digital marketing. You know, knew about TikTok. I mean, I'm not a TikTok guy, but you know, I, I know we need to you know you know connect with the patients through TikTok, Twitter, you know, Facebook, etc. So really bringing in those complementary skills. And then, so once the team was formed though, the challenge was around uh, how do you make it a team? You know, you have people, but how do you make it a team? So, you know, we just really tried to do everything we could to, to um, get together. You know, we, we did the outside lunches, you know, with masks and all that, but, <laughs> you know, through, I think, you know, a, a really good effort to try and bring people together and then I, and then also I think hiring really solid people who, who get along, you know, we, we've built a good culture. It's a very, um, it's a transparent group. And, I, you know, I think we all genuinely enjoy working with, with one another. So it's, it, it's kind of nice when, when you, um, when you see that the, I think the other part of your question was around, um, you know, working with a physician. I don't think there's a magic bullet for it. I mean, we, you know, we went to a much more virtual platform, you know, from a, from a sales team perspective you know there were there were opportunities with for the msls to meet virtually with physicians but you know i i think nothing's going to completely substitute for in person there's there's something about building a relationship with physicians ex, you know externally through in-person means but the other thing we we had to step up were use of digital platforms whether it you know whether it was for education purposes with emails you know, you know, not that this is so rocket science, but, you know, we had to install um, an RM program for physicians with physicians and patients, you know, at uh, Casey when I got here, because we didn't really have one to, to um, reach out to physicians. So we, you know, really spent a lot on the digital side to make sure that we could interact with uh, physicians and, and with patients um, on the disease, on the disease education side. And, 
you know, and, and then symposia and, and, and meetings at conferences, you know, we, we uh, you know, we build vir virtual booths and virtual symposia to connect with the physicians. But, you know, at the end of the day, I, I still think there's probably a ways to go. We probably, um, we're, we learned a lot. I think we were fairly successful with the interactions, but, you know, not having in person is definitely a deficit. And I, right now it's a lot more, it's a lot better because we have a better mix of, of you know, in-person and, and out of office uh, interaction. So it sounds like hybrid, do uh, you think is the way of the future? Do you think I that? I think so. Yeah, interesting, very cool. Sounds like a lot of exciting things going on with KAC and yourself in the rare disorder space. Sounds like you're doing some great advances there. Um, I think it's really exciting and congratulations to you and your team for some of the wonderful work that you're doing for patients who really, really need your medicines. For anybody who's interested in speaking with Larry, please look for his contact details in the show notes below. If you enjoyed this uh, the show, please check out impetusdigital.com. Um, we <clears throat> are happy actually to work with various stakeholders in a series of synchronous and asynchronous touch points to talk about these things, rare disorders. What are you doing? What is the clinical endpoints for your trials? How are you going to look for patients and other kinds of solves? We can actually do this in a really effective and efficient manner. Please a like and subscribe to our channel. And we'd really appreciate if you can leave us some feedback on iTunes. We wanna thank everybody for their time and thank you, Larry, for an outstanding conversation. Thank you for listening to this Healthcare Goes Digital podcast. Impetus Digital are the business-to-business -business virtual engagement experts and provide immersive virtual collaboration and communication solutions for advisory boards, medical education meetings, events, conferences, and projects worldwide, all delivered with our award-winning white glove service. Visit us at impetusdigital.com or book a demo at meetwithimpetus.com to find out more. And visit us on our LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube channel to see other inspiring conversations for you to share with your network.